Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Resuming Debate podcast. I'm your host, Member of Parliament, Garnet Jenis. Today, we are doing a Resuming Debate collab. I don't really know what that means, but apparently that's what the, the kids are saying these days, right, Tom? So uh, Tom Kemich, my, uh, my colleague from Calgary Shepherd, we were both elected in 2015. Around the same time I was launching this Resuming Debate podcast, he was launching a Substack under the same name, Resuming Debate. Um, so I don't even know what a Substack is. And uh, we, we briefly talked about, you know, taking each other to court uh, for, for copyright infringement or something. Uh, and then uh, decided we would just, uh, you know, get on with our lives. And uh, so, so uh, Tom's going to come on here today and we're going to talk about uh, a bit about his background with a bit of a real focus on energy security, an issue that Tom knows a lot about and has been working on as a, as a Calgary MP and also as an immigrant from Eastern Europe. Um, and then uh, I'm going to make some kind of appearance on his Substack once I figure out what that is. So Tom, welcome welcome to the Resuming Debate podcast. Yeah, thanks, Garnet. Thanks for uh, including me on this um, initiative of yours. And a Substack is basically like a, a newsletter from the 1990s. But it's a, a platform for writers, essentially. And I started my Substack, like you said, just around the time you started your podcast. And I think two, two great things can have the same name, right? And then that, that's totally okay. And, and mine is basically, uh, I decided I needed to start a newsletter that I could send to constituents. I have just under 10,000 constituents who signed up to it and some people from all across the country. And it's just a way for me to reach out to them. So I'm looking forward to you contributing by uh, doing these guest columns. Occasionally I do guest columns on like big policy issues that I think people in my writing care about. So I'm looking forward to you making that contribution. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, that's great. Um, uh, we're we're both active House of Commons men, and and that's where uh, I guess the resuming debate line uh, comes from. As uh, uh, so, uh, great minds think alike, I guess, right? Uh, or, yeah. or fools seldom differ. Yeah, fools seldom differ. Exactly. I think we're always on the same track. Like I I I had the same idea you did, which was you know oftentimes the speaker rises and then we continue debating. They say resuming debate, and in my case, I I kind of noticed how bad civic discourse had gotten on a lot of social media platforms. And um, my attempt through my Substack is to try and say the things in a thousand words that now you're being asked to tweet in 140 characters or whatever the limit is these days, and then try to cover more ground and provide not just a hot take in the moment, but something a little bit more thoughtful uh, while still being obviously a partisan conservative. And I don't think there's anything wrong with partisanship, but try to give the full explanation of the ideas as opposed to just the soundbite, which I think oftentimes loses some of the depth and the philosophy involved in why we take the positions that we do. Yeah, well said. So uh, we're gonna talk uh, a lot today about the issue of, of energy security. And uh, I, I assume you're finding a, a similar sort of thing where um, coming from my writing, but also having an interest in international affairs, uh, I end up talking a lot about energy issues uh, and, and the economic benefits associated with them, as well as issues of, uh, of foreign policy and human rights. And since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, those issues have really come together because uh, actually the biggest thing we can do 
to, in the long term, support the people of, of Ukraine and other peoples in Eastern Europe, address Russian aggression is, uh, is, uh, is, stop the, uh, is stop the dependency of Europe on Russian gas, and that means replacing and displacing it. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, Tom, you, you have a, a personal background, obviously, as someone who was, who was born uh, in a communist country. Why don't you share a bit about your personal story, uh, your, your childhood memories coming to Canada, and, uh, and how that has shaped your, your political involvement? Yeah, so I, I think um, there's not many of us parliamentarians who can say that they're actually born in a communist country, I was born back in 1981. So at the time of this podcast, that makes me 40 years old. Um, I, my father came here in 1983, uh, it, separately from the rest of the family. My grandfather was passing away of brain cancer in Toronto, and the Canadian government issued him a medical entry visa, so he actually could leave and come to Canada. But we were separated for two years from my father. My brother was actually born the week after my, my dad had already left for, for Canada. And he had decided he, he wasn't coming back. My uncle had, had already been here. He, a few years before, had left uh, actually on a, on a ferry to Sweden. And as the story goes, it's a picture of him uh, with a bicycle and a backpack. And that's all he had. Those are all the worldly possessions he took with him when he left communist Poland. Um, we came here in 1985. And um, I come from Gdańsk. Danzig is its German name. So my father was a member of the Solidarity Movement. He was one of the founding members. Uh, that's not that special. I mean, uh, there were like 10,000 founding members. The Lenin shipyards in Gdańsk were huge shipyards. They, they, they built a lot of ships every single year. Uh, you would not find a shipyard like this in Canada today. Um, and my, my, when my dad left, uh, eventually was able to sponsor us. And then, you know, the communist government, the policy at the time was if you were a family member of a member of solidarity overseas, uh, they wanted you to leave. Uh, the, the idea was that as many of these malcontents as possible that they could get rid of, that was a good thing, would stabilize the communist regime. They had for a few years martial law in place. So I still remember that pretty vividly. And, and that's still a story that my grandmother and my parents used to share around the dinner table um, that, you know, the police force had been dispersed in our in our hometown, that uh, the military was on the streets mm -hmm. and that, you know, there were checkpoints. They had to show your ID cards. And I was too little. I didn't have an ID card, but my grandmother would have to do these types of things. And, um, you know, I still remember playing with uh, some of the childhood friends. There's a picture we have. They're all black and white baby pictures that probably stuns a lot of people. There was no color film in Poland. You just couldn't get your hands on it. So all my baby pictures are in black and white, but playing in a sandbox with Wojtek, who is a friend of mine in my youth. I got to meet him once when I returned to Poland. I've only been back twice since then, uh, once as a parliamentarian. But those are like the vivid memories I had when we left. Uh, when we landed here March 26, 1985, we landed in Montreal. And uh, I remember getting off the, the airplane and there were there was no gate. There, was, there weren't these um, you know, electronic uh, gates that would roll up. You had to get onto the tarmac and um, hadn't seen my father for two years. This is before Facebook, Google, regular telephone calls, cell phones, all that stuff didn't exist. And uh, I just remember asking my mom, who was this man? And, and my mom had to remind me that this was our, our father that we had not seen or talked to in two years because there was the, all that distance and separation. So, I mean, those are my memories of, uh, of communism in Poland. Um, lots of jokes. My family made jokes. Uh, pretty, you know, Polish people are generally regarded as having pretty dark humor. Uh, that's what kind of happens after 60 years of occupation, as I call it, by the Soviet Union, and being forced to have a regime that you didn't ask for imposed upon you after World War II. 
Um, and, and that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up in a very, very strong anti-communist family, uh, a lot of resentment towards the regime at the time of Yerzhelsky. And uh, I, all of us were stunned when in 89, when communism basically collapsed and, and overnight based, the country changed and um, there was democracy again in Poland. So that's kind of like what I remember at experience at a dinner table with, with my, my family members uh, is something we will all talk about uh, all my family is here in Canada now. We have no more living relatives. I think there are still some second cousins uh, living in Poland, but uh, happy to say that we're all you know, very proud, very strong Canadians. Mm -hmm. That's a, an incredible story. And, and look, even if there were 10,000 people at the start of it, it's still a pretty incredible legacy for you that your, your father was, was one of those who stood up. I mean, um, sometimes when we take stands in Canadian politics, people say, oh, very brave of you to be saying that. And I, um, because I follow human rights uh, cases around the world, I always think, no, no way. I mean, we, we have it relatively easy, right? Taking a stand here. It's those, those people like your father that are, uh, that we're taking stands on political issues um, when, when it wasn't just, it wasn't just their their name being run down on Twitter that was at stake. It was their um, their 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 basic security and, and that of yeah. the family that was yeah exactly like my, my my father my father's fortunate I I don't think he ever told me about being arrested but he had friends who were arrested for their political activism for simple things like just handing out leaflets that was a cause to be arrested I mean the law uh, at one point in Poland said that if three of you were walking on the sidewalk that was considered that you were protesting you were um, hmm. counter revolution you could be arrested. Uh, my dad has way better stories than I do. He actually was in riots in the capital in Warsaw, in, in Warsaw, uh, while he was a student at uh, one of the technical universities. My father's an engineer. And um, he had stories of like actual tanks in the streets and, and rioting and people throwing rocks and the full deal, but also people being arrested just for simple acts of um, civic activism, not even civil disobedience, just handing out leaflets, talking to others about politics could get you arrested. So yeah, absolutely. Like it, it's a different story uh, when you're, you live in an autocratic or communist regime where you don't agree with the government and you actually do expose yourself to risks. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are a lot of Canadians that have that experience of being a kind of child of, of uh, communism, right? Or, or having uh, been born in or, or born to parents, you know, we've got uh, Polish Canadians, Ukrainian Canadians, uh, Vietnamese Canadians, uh, Chinese Canadians. And, um, and so uh, maybe tell us a little bit about kind of coming to Canada, getting involved in politics and just how that background shaped you, uh, shaped your attitudes towards uh, economic issues, um, um, you know, civil liberties, uh, democratic participation, those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I like a lot of households, like the one I grew up in, whether you were, you know, of Korean origin, like you said, Vietnamese, um, mainland China as well, if you People's Republic of China, you know, one of the most horrific regimes in the world. Um, but if you, even if you came from one of the other uh, SSRs, as we call them, one of the uh, republics that broke off from the Soviet Union, so Kazakhstan, Mongolia, which wasn't a part of the Soviet Union, but it was definitely heavily influenced by its two neighbors, which went communist. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in Montreal, and so I, I'm also one of those Bill 101 kids. I grew up having to go through the K-12 system, or K-11 in the case of Quebec, uh, in French. 
and uh, I only picked up English afterwards. I think my formative experience, honestly, was the 1995 Quebec secession referendum. That's when I became really politically active. Um, because in my mind, that was like, I, I felt like I had just moved to another country. And 10 years later, the country's about to break up. And my parents had packed our, the minivan, had moved their bank accounts to Toronto. Um, the talk around the table was, we're not going to make the same mistake again. There's an opportunity to leave a country that looks like it's going downhill and the civic culture is just going to break apart. And there's all this uncertainty. Uh, we don't want to stay. So for me, the big formative experience wasn't so much 1985 landing here. It was 1995, the secession referendum and the years afterwards. And that probably made me much more conservative. I was probably down, going down that path because of my family experience. So, you know, a traditional outlook on, you know, the role of government a healthy, healthy distrust of what government can or should or must do. Um, I, I generally have the opinion that government is incompetent at most things it attempts to do and therefore should do much less. So it can focus on its core tasks that it can probably do much better if it just focused on, on only those things. Um, I you know I, I would describe myself you know, as a libertarian leaning conservative, social conservative kind of, um, you know, I, I consider that pretty regular for most uh, Canadians of Polish heritage, like myself, you know, the kind of outlook that a healthy distrust for uh, what Western countries say, as opposed to what they actually do. And uh, when I look at international organizations, I, they don't really function very well in the service of protecting um, those people who are governed by a government they did not choose. They had, they played no role in selecting government. I also have a very heavy dislike for the terminology I hear, like spheres of influence, which I find one of the most like pejorative things you can say, because it simply assumes that people living next door to a great country, a big country, a superpower, or even a, a great power have lesser rights. They have their um, ability to take actions or take control of their lives and decide for themselves is lesser because they happen to be next to geographically next to a great power. And, and Polish people, I think, recognize this very readily, happen to be geographically located in one of the worst places you can be uh, between uh, Germany and Russia. Historically, has not been a great place to be. Uh, I think every single Polish person will tell you that our textbooks, and I went to Saturday Polish school, will tell you not a great place to be, as it turns out. Uh, a lot of conflict generated by being in this particular place in the world's geography. Um, a lot of disagreements with neighbors, a lot of wars, a lot of population displacements, pogroms. And that's kind of generate kind of a healthy a distrust of governments in general, uh, a very tight affinity for uh, our, our typically Catholic religious uh, affiliations. And you know that really shaped my worldview, which is a, a distrust, of, distrust of the international institutions on what they say versus what they actually do, the actions they actually take, the hard things they do. Um, and I think, yeah, that that's kind of how I view the world, a very real politic view of international politics, and at closer to home, a very traditional view of what government should undertake to do. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I want to go back to uh, just the, the experience of, of Poland uh, in general, uh, you know, be, be between Russia's exertion of power and in, in, in Germany. Um, but let me just ask, first of all, uh, about your move to Alberta. And uh, so you, you had these these formative experiences in uh, in Poland and then in, in Quebec, um, but you represent a riding in Calgary, and you're you're um, 
you know, you're a fluently bilingual, trilingual MP with a great understanding of Quebec. Um, and that's maybe a unique perspective, uh, right, to be an Alberta MP who grew up in Quebec. So, so tell us about that move and how uh, being an Albertan with those Quebec roots has shaped your, uh, your political activity. Yeah, so I, I moved, uh, once I completed university in Montreal, I moved um, to Ottawa first, actually, I got a, my first kind of um, taste of uh, like very active politics, I'd say was uh, volunteering the 2004 election for a conservative candidate in uh, my then riding of Brossard La Prairie. Uh, we lost, I, I think that's not a shock to anybody, we lost that election very badly. But I, I door knocked, I put up signs, we leafleted, we lit dropped, we did everything you do, you know, you, the whole gamut. And there's not a lot of volunteers on those campaigns back in those days. It was difficult to be a conservative. And I came from one of the legacy parties, the Keen Alliance. Um, and I was a Keen Alliance uh, supporter in Quebec, which was even more difficult. You're in the minority of the minority. Uh, so when I moved in 2005, to do the internship, I worked for Stephen Harper in his research in the research OLO. So the leader's office has a research communication shop and I basically did opposition research and whatever else I was assigned to do. And afterwards, uh, uh, I, I met a lady on the internship and I moved out to Alberta to Calgary. And uh, I, I just thought Alberta was the greatest place you could live in Canada. I could not imagine that you could be this free to do whatever the heck you wanted to do. Uh, you didn't need to get a permit or a license to do many things. Uh, I thought Stampede was just a total novelty that all these people would volunteer willingly uh, locally as just like a civic cultural thing you did. And I was always stunned at how quickly, and even I've just started doing this, I, I volunteer actively for a lot of these Stampede breakfast. Um, and I think I'll probably do this my entire life just because I, you, it's a, it's a civic identity we adopt very quickly as Albertans and it just becomes ours. And we're just happy to do it, happy to participate and share community with our neighbors. I mean, I've lived in Edmonton uh, when I worked at the Alberta legislature. I have lived in Calgary basically on and off since um, since when I moved there in 2005. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I've, I, I love the city. All of my kids are born in Calgary at the Peter Lougheed Hospital, uh, all the same hospital too, on purpose. And I, I just, I think Alberta has been a huge blessing to my family. Um, absolutely love it. I consider myself an adopted Albertan. Uh, and again, it's that civic identity. Uh, it takes, I think, a lot of time for people to figure out that they're Albertans and they want to live in Alberta and move out there. But it's just that breath of fresh air, the ability to go and do and start a business and run it the way you want to do it. Uh, the light touch regulations, the government is not in your face announcing things all the time. You really get to, you get the full experience, I think, of Western Canada. And um and you get to travel to the mountains. I mean, what is there not to love, especially with Calgary? I, I know you're an Edmonton region MP, but especially with Calgary, we get to cheat in the winters with our Chinooks. And that, I think, is something that people don't rate highly enough. Uh, I've never had the experience, frankly, of going out in, in a January Canadian winter in plus 15 weather in a T-shirt and being able to say this is perfectly normal. This is Calgary. I love this place. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's no Sherwood Park, but, uh, but it's a, it's a great part of the world. So um, yeah, Tom, it's, it's great for people to be able to hear, hear about your, your background and your story. And you, you kind of bring those, those elements together, right. Having spent time in Quebec, you know, being a, a proud Albertan now, and then also your, uh, your Polish roots. And so let's, let's bring all of those things together in a, um, a discussion about some of the current events that, that we're dealing with as MPs right now. Um, 
so about two months ago, uh, Russia, uh, Putin regime invades Ukraine. Um, being in that um, in that uh, contested uh, border border area, borderlands between uh, between Russia and Germany, uh, Poland and Ukraine haven't always had the the best of uh, of relations. There have been complicated points in the history, um, but there's obviously a, a shared experience in terms of that um, that pressure, that uh, just being being regular victims of occupation and, and violence, and uh, now there's a great sense of um, I think of of uh, brotherhood and common purpose between the uh, the people of of Poland and Ukraine as well as uh, as others in that region. Um, maybe if you can share just a little bit about your your reaction to the invasion, and then also uh, what you're seeing in terms of what uh, what Poland is doing and and the kind of uh, Polish Ukrainian relationship in the context of of what's unfolding. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the invasion by the Russian Federation of Ukraine. I by I'd say middle of January of 2022, I had made up my mind that I was convinced that, that Russia would in fact invade Ukraine. Um, I think the debate in, in my family, especially my brother and I was, would they invade in order to occupy the entire country or would they invade in order to break off Luhansk and Donetsk in the East? And um, I, that I, I couldn't make up my mind on which of the two they were trying to do, but I was looking at photos uh, you know, on Twitter and on other social media and uh, on Russian-based news and Ukrainian news. And uh, you could see that they had much more equipment than was needed. So equipment like, uh, you know, temporary bridges. These are like these big steel bridges that you lay when a bridge is blown up so you can move your tanks and armored vehicles over. You could see the remind sweepers. And there was this other equipment that they were preparing. And it was obvious that they were planning something much bigger than just a typical military exercise in order to... Uh, rattle the saber along the border uh, with Ukraine. So that being said, like, the Republic of Poland uh, has accepted you know, more refugees than any other country in the region. We're talking millions of people. But Poland's been accepting refugees since 2014. Uh, Ukrainians have been able to get work permits, and millions of them have, in Poland. So Poland since 2014, when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine, and you know this is a, a continuation of that invasion of that war. So the invasion then, you know, uh, in, in, the, in the separatist forces that were created in the east as the excuse for the invasion, the invasion and occupation of Crimea. Um, since then, Poland's been basically lending aid to Ukraine, and a lot of countries did. Canada's one of the first ones there. Prime Minister Harper traveled to Kiev right after uh, the revolution. And you know, we, we signed a free trade agreement. We provided active on the ground assistance to shore up their civic institutions, uh, to fight against corruption, to beef up their economy, beef up their military, train the personnel. Like we were there on the ground, but so was the Republic of Poland. And I think what we share most in common is uh, we both have a history of being occupied by the Russian Federation, by the Tsarist regime, by the Soviet Union. I mean, there's a long history and there's an affinity that comes from it. Uh, the other part is while we don't share a common language because Polish and Ukrainian are very different, They're, they have a Cyrillic af, uh, alphabet. We don't use the Cyrillic alphabet. Ours is uh, the Romanesque uh, French alphabet. Um, we share a lot of history, a lot of sometimes some of the words maybe share, they, they maybe sound similar, uh, but ethnically we're both Slavs, uh, we're both Slavic people, so are the Russians, so we, we have the commonality as well, but a lot of the cities in eastern, uh, so eastern Poland, uh, western Ukraine, 
uh, a lot of those cities have a very have a shared Polish-Ukrainian history, and that border has moved over the hundreds of years that it's been there, uh, back and forth as you know empires have moved through, countries have been founded and refounded, and Poland was partitioned. Uh, starting in the late 1700s after the 770, 1770s. And there were three great partitions that took Poland apart. So a lot of those regions made it into uh, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and um, the Prussian Empire. Uh, and likewise for Ukraine, Ukraine suffered through these partitions of its territory, uh, breakaway regions, occupations by others. So we share a lot of common history of being, you know, forced to do things or forcibly russified, we call it. So forced to learn the Russian language, the Russian culture, um, even though we didn't want to, we were on a different path. You know, Kiev has been there longer than Moscow has. Kiev is an older city than the city of Moscow is. Um, and I think that's something that people need to remember. Uh, you know, the Polish state, the Polish people kind of start around the 10th century. Um, and at the very, very beginning of the 11th century, Kiev is founded. That's a really big deal for people to remember. These aren't things that just happened in the last hundred years. These are places that have been there for a millennia. I think that's the distinguishing factor. And, you know, it, we always we haven't always had you know this this wonderful relationship between the two. Uh, a really good example are the nationalists who fought in Ukraine for the liberation of Ukraine from Soviet occupation, and they fought on the some of them fought on the side of the Nazis. They didn't fight against them. Um, that was an experience of Poland. Poland was attacked on both sides, both by the Soviet Union and by the Nazis. And it was a joint occupation by both powers, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. I mean, if anybody has experience of dealing and negotiating with Nazis and finding an amicable agreement, it's the Soviet Union, it's the Russian Federation that we're happy to do it then. Um, but by that point, Ukraine had been uh, invaded, uh, defeated and occupied by the Russian Federation. The Soviet Union basically came about in, in this, this occupying factor and dissidents were wiped out either through the Holodomor or through the purges imposed by Stalin afterwards. But there were those, there is that, that difference of opinion. Bandera is a very good example. Bandera is considered by some Ukrainians a nationalist hero, but he also murdered 60,000 plus uh, Jews and Polish Jews, but also Polish nationalists and, and, and Polish citizens. Um, so we have a difference of opinion. History looks different in Eastern Europe, depending on which side you stood on, especially World War II. World War II is a very formative, I think, experience for a lot of states and for a lot of people. And our identity is based a lot around which side were you on in the conflict? Did you stand up to the Nazi regime as it was making its way eastward through Eastern Europe? Uh, did you side with the Soviets or did you fight both of them for your liberation and for the liberation of your neighbors? That's a distinguishing factor for a lot of people in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating history, um, and I think it's uh, it's important. And I know we do we we cover um, we cover different history uh, issues from time to time on this podcast, and um, so I, I think uh, listeners will appreciate the the context you've provided, and also just linking it to the to the present, saying that you know since the 2014 invasion, uh, there's been uh, just an immense effort on the on the part of Poland to welcome refugees and. Um, you know, we, we've made the case that Canada should have allow visa-free travel for Ukrainians, uh, and the government has said they don't want to do that, and, and our response is in part, look at all these other countries that are accepting so many refugees. Um, if, uh, if Poland and Baltic states and others can do their part, you know, Canada can, uh, uh, Canada can step up as well. Um, 
Yeah, Garden, maybe yeah. just on that, just it's good to mention too, like Poland is accepting uh, Ukrainians fleeing across the border with no identity papers. You, all you need to be is Ukrainian wanting to flee the war and they will take you in, provide you food, provide you housing and take care of you as best that they can. And it's not just the government doing, it's like a, a broader civic organizational thing. I go onto these uh, Polish Facebook groups based in Poland uh, and you can tell people are offering their bedrooms, they're offering a couch, they're offering to feed them. It, it really is like a, an all society thing thing that people are doing is there's a lot of encouragement people are giving to each other but there's also a lot of pride to this because in the reverse if poland had been invaded if poland was the victim on the receiving end of russian aggression one would hope that another country would step in the way poland is doing for ukrainians uh to just provide them that that safe place to flee to uh while this war is being fought by uh, men and women who have stayed behind in Ukraine to fight for their country. Like, I think that's the, the broader hope for a lot of Polish people is, again, in the Polish community, um, and, and, and that community is the same here, like um, Canadians of Polish heritage, like myself, will say that after 1945, officially, when the war ends for Western powers, uh, Poland, it, like a, a lot of Polish people say, we feel betrayed by Western powers because we are basically left to our own. And that's sort of what my grandparents used to say is, uh, Poland wasn't allowed to march on V-Day. Poland wasn't a part of those victory marches. Polish national heroes were actually hunted down by uh, Soviet soldiers, by Soviet governments, puppet governments set up in, in Poland, um, trialed and executed, like people like Witold Pilecki, a national war hero in Poland. Um, that's really important to remember. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, so let's transition now to talking about the energy security issues. Um, what I said at the beginning was this, there was this sort of coming together of, uh, of issues. There has been for me, the, the foreign affairs issues and the energy issues, you know, kind of both, both overlapping. Um, I was in Poland uh, last year and talking a bit to, to people there about energy security issues. And um, Poland doesn't, from what I understand, Poland does not take a, a lot of Russian gas. Uh, they're more reliant on coal. And that has meant uh, looking for uh, alternatives from an environmental perspective, but not wanting um, not wanting that alternative to be Russian gas. So there's an energy security issue there as well. But the, the current energy mix is a bit different. But many, many countries in the region are very reliant on Russian gas. Uh, 75% of Russia's gas exports go to Europe um, and uh, a majority of, of coal exports as well. Uh, it, it plays a huge role in Russia's economy. Russia is, uh, has an economy a lot like Canada's in certain respects, built on developing and exporting uh, energy resources. Uh, but unlike Canada, uh, I've made the point, Russia is not, uh, is not ashamed about uh, about that source of its potential strength and is not unwilling to use that strength to its strategic advantage. So Canada is therefore uniquely placed uh, as, a, as also an energy producing power to, to play this, this critical leading role in, um, in displacing Russian gas and, and ending Europe's dependence on it. Um, so as, given your background coming, coming from, from Eastern Europe and, and representing a Calgary riding, obviously very reliant on, on the energy sector, how do you see this discussion about energy security unfolding and, and how do you think it's it's changing the conversations people are having about our oil and gas sector? 
I mean, I, I don't think it's new. I think people have been talking about this for well over a decade. And, you know, some people are trying to raise the alarm that the European Union, many of their countries were becoming uh, too reliant on the Russian Federation. Once you, I think, exceed 50% of your, um, and I'm just using 50%, but if you're importing more than 50% of the natural gas you need um, from one country, and it happens to be an autocracy and basically a dictatorship, um, you have a problem because they will use uh, their energy surplus that they export potentially as a, as a weapon against you in order to influence your politics, in order to compel you to take certain public policy stances that you may not want to take. Um, but it, it's always kind of a slow drip. And this has this isn't something that's been coming quickly. It's been slowly accumulating over time. So I remember being in Poland back in 2018 as part of the Canada-NATO Parliamentary Association. I was one of the delegates that was sent there. Um, and I remember I, I actually sat through the, the energy discussions. Those were the most interesting to me. Again, I'm from Calgary. Imperial Oil is headquartered in my riding. There used to be a refinery in my riding up in Linwood. I just couldn't help myself. So I sat through the discussions just to be able to listen to on Nord Stream. And that's the biggest one that people talk about. Now, because Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, uh, was constructed you know, in September 2021, would have doubled the flow of Russian gas to the European Union. The project was halted in February 2022. I remember back in 2018, I, I heard congressmen from the United States, I heard leaders from other countries warning German parliamentarians who were at this NATO meeting that uh, they were exposing themselves to risk. They were providing um, too much cash, too, there was too much cash going to the Russian Federation to become too dependent on a single country for sor sourcing most of uh, their natural gas needs and oil as well. Uh, Russia's percentage export to the European Union, 26.9% up until this war came from the Russian Federation. That, that is a huge risk to a country when you're so dependent on a single source of oil from a, a, this autocracy. Europe spends right now a billion dollars a day to pay for coal, natural gas, and oil imported from Russia. It's a combination of all of them. Now, some of those have been drastically reduced now that all these sanctions have been imposed and people are actively trying to avoid buying it, but it's an international market. So that oil is going to move and is going to move to places that are less picky about uh, the human rights record in the Russian Federation. They're less picky about the fact that Russia has invaded a successive series of its neighbors. Uh, Russia invaded Georgia, after all. Uh, Russia has now invaded Ukraine, but Russia has also had border conflicts with other countries. It also assisted the Assad regime in Syria by providing uh, the Wagner Group, which is a PMC, a private military company that was flown there, but also Russian military personnel helped in uh, the put down or the the suppression of the rebellion in Aleppo. And I, I remember a lot of people were so upset at seeing these barrel bombs and the carpet bombing of suburbs of Aleppo and uh, innocent civilians being basically mass killed in these types of situations because they were trying to put down rebellion and the Russian Federation wasn't as, uh, as choice in their targeting. They were much more interested in achieving their end goal and their end goal was all that mattered, didn't matter how you achieved it. So on energy security, I think when countries expose themselves to a single supplier, it's to such a high degree they're also exposing their local politics. And we've heard the stories before of especially German politicians making their way onto the board of directors of Gazprom and other places. Um, 
and, and this has been an active policy of the German government, again, up until this most recent invasion. It was an active policy to try and import all of this natural gas and oil from the Russian Federation, while they were also shutting down nuclear power plants. So they were actively, this was an active policy decision that German politicians had made, that it was better to import and to have these GG emissions produced outside their country in order to meet their climate change goals. Um, in an energy efficiency didn't really count into this. Their uh, kilowatt hour rates were going way, way up in the energy Wien program, as they called it. They were shutting down coal power plants while basically displacing the emissions to another country. And if, they, if you chose to displace, I think your emissions to a place like uh, the United Kingdom or France, which has a massive nuclear power plant sector or Canada or America, uh, we are not known for wielding our our um, energy exports as a weapon against other countries. We don't do that. We don't engage in that type of behavior. But the Russian Federation has no such qualms. Um, I don't think the, Caldi uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia doesn't have such qualms because um, it happens to be one of the big uh, exporters to the European Union as well. So I think that's the, the policy decision a lot of democracies have to make is where are you sourcing your... Uh, fossil fuels your energy from and can you count on that government not to wield it as a weapon against you uh, in the future and in the case this is a perfect example now with the Russian Federation is it's not as if their intent wasn't clear back you know just before 2014 when they invaded and occupied Crimea and then invaded and supported these these so-called separatist forces in Luhansk and Donetsk uh, that was an active policy decision of the Russian Federation and they were willing to bear quite a large cost. I mean, Putin and his war machine have accumulated a sovereign wealth fund of well over $300 billion to sustain the Russian economy, despite all these Western sanctions. So um, I think the weakness in European energy policymaking was they completely ignored the fact that becoming dependent on a large single supplier like this put at risk all the rest of their public policy decisions that they were making. And now you have the end result is that a country like Ukraine and Ukrainian people are the victims of those policy decisions. Uh, they are now at the mercy of the Russian war machine, financed, rearmed um, over the years that we were that they were paying out in this large amount. And I think the opportunity, I'll end on this because I think it's a good point here. Um, Canada has an opportunity to displace some of that Russian oil. If only we had been making decisions you know, since 2015 to try and enhance our ability to ship off of our wet, off our east coast, especially Pro, uh, projects like Energy East or projects going through the port of Churchill in Manitoba, uh, those are the types of nation-building projects that allow Canada not intentionally, but it's like it's a happy extra benefit bonus that we get is that our allies can then purchase our natural gas or our oil products. And they don't, they don't have to worry. We're not going to get involved in your public policymaking. We're much more likely to go and try to negotiate things. We're not going to cut you off uh, from our natural gas supplies because we don't run it. Those are run by private companies. Those are private contracts. And we just allow the private sector to do its thing and provide that shared prosperity. And we can share it with the Europeans, continental Europeans especially, if only they had made those wiser decisions and then only we had been ready to deliver because right now we're not ready to deliver. Even if we wanted to, we'd be unable to ship off our East Coast any new energy products to make up some of that difference. Not all of it, we're not able to do that, but maybe some of that difference to give them those options, give them that flexibility and they don't have it right now. Mm -hmm.
uh, Tom, that's a great synopsis of, of the situation and in, in terms of what we need to do. Uh, I guess it's, it's frustrating in politics that we don't have the, the time travel option to us, right? Because uh, available to us, because we can look back and say, you know, we've been talking about these issues since 2015, the need to have pipeline infrastructure, the importance for, I mean, we've mainly talked about it as an economic issue, but the security issue as well. And on their part, many people in Europe have been raising concern about this dependency. Um, governments, I think, on both sides of the Atlantic were, um, were, were not attentive enough to this issue. And uh, this is one of the failures of government is, is uh, governments are supposed to be there to plan for these kinds of crisis situations. And we, we've seen with COVID, we've seen, seen with, uh, with other such situations, just the, uh, the governments aren't actually uh, prepared for these kinds of, of possibilities. Um, so we can't go back in time. Um, we have to figure out what we can do as quickly as possible now uh, to, um, to address that dependency as quickly as possible and, um, and to demonstrate credibility and moving quickly so that hopefully it will lead to some, some change of course in terms of, of uh, uh, the Kremlin's aggressive intentions. So, so um, and in terms of, of speed of response, it's some, a lot of this depends on the infrastructure, right? Uh, how quickly can we get energy infrastructure built? What can we do in the meantime prior to the building out of that infrastructure? Um, and uh, you know, so can we speed up these processes, but what can we do, do in the meantime? So what's your, what's your prescription for, um, for moving as quickly as possible, given where we are now? Yeah, I, I think in a case of Canada, like I, I remember when I worked for the Calgary Chamber of Commerce um, for a few years, I we that chamber is actually the one that coined the Canadian energy strategy nomenclature. Like that that wording came from the Calgary Chamber before it was picked up by the Council of Premiers in in a Kananaskis meeting they had. And this was like over a decade ago, well over a decade ago, I think. Um, in that report that the chamber prepared, it was actually, I'm not the one that prepared it. I just helped getting along, but it was another Polish Tom, Tom Palak, uh, who had done a lot of legwork on it. Um, but the idea there is like, uh, Canada's a middle of power. Like we're not one of these countries uh, gifted with a huge population. And uh, we are endowed with a lot of mineral resources. We have the opportunity, we have the potential uh, to be a really great middle power. But when it comes to energy, uh, I remember, again, uh, writing for the chamber with our chief economist, we wrote um, an article um, that appeared in one of the Western papers, um, Canada as an energy superpower, because that is really a, a niche that we can fill. We have the ability, we have the technology, and we have these private companies which are really looking to innovate and maximize their production, that we can substitute and displace some of this conflict oil, conflict natural gas, but also some of this, uh, some of these energy products which are coming from sources of countries which may use it as a weapon from of uh, foreign policy making, public policy making, like the Russian Federation. Today, I think what we need to recognize is that over the past six and a half years, the policy of the federal government to make it extremely difficult to build pipelines to the East Coast and just major energy projects um, was a, a terrible mistake, a devastating mistake for the security of Europe. Uh, they own that. I mean, you cannot predict the future. You don't know what's going to happen. But part of government policymaking should be 
um, the cautionary principle should be applied. It's like, well, what if certain things happen? You should lay out the scenarios uh, that you might be worried about in the next five years, next 10 years, next 15 years. Um, and I think this one was a reasonable scenario to make, especially because as of 2014, you already knew that the Russian Federation had plans uh, for territorial annexation of Ukrainian territory. And so Ukraine's future is not a given. And I think that's really important. The borders of Europe are only as sacrosanct as we make them, both as partners in NATO, but also as interested in as a country interested in um, the international world order and world peace, not having conflicts where countries are trying to take each other over and destroy their borders, the culture, the, the language of another people who are next door to them. Um, Canada can play that, I think, that middle power role by maximizing our pipeline capacity. Uh, and it should be driven by the private sector. I really do not believe in private sector dollars from the taxpayer being put towards the construction of pipelines. I might make an exception during like a time of total war, like World War II type scenarios. Okay, that is a different story. But I, I think here we need to reverse the very damaging uh, legislative changes made in Bill C-69, which is, uh, we you know call it the, the no, no more pipelines bill, but a lot of other regulatory changes need to be done in order for us to maximize the production of what ethical oil, conflict-free oil that we have in Canada, invite that foreign investment to return to Canada, um, and, you know, and provide some really good, strong incentives. Uh, if, you know, we have a very well-educated workforce. We have an excellent human rights record. We have very high environmental standards. And then give ourselves the ability uh, for private companies to be able to negotiate agreements and deals with terminals and countries and companies in Europe. And, you know, maybe we can't displace all 50% of, you know, the natural gas being or the coal being imported from Russia by all of these allied countries that we have uh, right before the invasion. You know, the dominant gas supplier for Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, they each received between 75 to 100% of the natural gas imports from Russia. Now, that's huge. So maybe we can't replace all of it, but maybe we can't provide 5%, 10%, 15 20 You know, at a certain point, Canada would then reach that, that critical mass where we then become a large player like the United States. The United States has made policy decisions that gave it the ability to become the world's largest exporter of oil and one of the largest exporters of natural gas to Europe. Uh, in fact, the United States now is one of the biggest exporters of LNG to Europe today. Um, when you have that type of ability, that gives you policy choices then. Because then when a country is pleading for help and support, you can then turn around and say, well, how about we make it easier to export LNG from our country to yours? Have you built an LNG terminal where we can actually ship natural gas to you? Or do we have to go through a neighbor of yours, maybe a friendly neighbor that is an allied state to both of us that this can be facilitated? Um, again, driven by mostly by private companies as much as humanly possible. That's one policy decision that could be fairly easy to make immediately. But then it comes the construction costs associated with those projects. And the government of Canada has been making it more and more difficult both to finance these projects, to give market certainty that these projects will be completed. You know, the permit that you get from the government, is it going to last? Because we saw what happened with Keystone XL. Um, even though the government of Canada said verbally they were committed to the project, the moment the Biden administration canceled it, that was it. We just took the no... And the government of Canada just walked away from it, pretending, you know, verbally saying, well, we supported the project. But 
it's more than just verbal support. You should be promoting, defending the project's merits as well with an allied state like America. We couldn't even ensure that Keystone XL would have survived. That would also provide hundreds uh, of barrels, hundreds of thousands of barrels per day of production to be shipped to our southern neighbor, again, providing another outlet for our oil eventually to get to Europe. So that's one policy area, I think, that we could get the move on immediately, which is the approval on the construction of pipeline and energy infrastructure to Europe. And then on the flip side, helping the Europeans also build that infrastructure. There's a lot of great Canadian companies in Canada uh, who are experts in this type of construction uh, that could provide that type of help, who could build and bid on those projects. We have a Canada-Europe free trade agreement that we signed. Part of that is energy and energy infrastructure. Uh, we can build these things. Sherwood Park has a, in Strathcona County, have a ton of these refineries and yes. upgraders, cutting edge technology that many people salivate at. We don't have perhaps the scale of say a place like India where some of the refineries are simply gigantic, but at the finer edge of technology, Canada is already there. And we can provide that know-how to Baltic states, to a lot of Eastern European states, so they're not dependent as much on the Russian Federation for their energy supplies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's great. I wonder if, if you can comment on the evolving domestic politics of this here in Canada. Um, the things you're saying make sense. Uh, repealing Bill C-69, for example, and, uh, and recognizing the mistake that's been made. Um, is the public conversation around these issues changing such that, that there's the momentum towards these kinds of solutions? Um, there seems to be some momentum that way from some of the things people are saying, but on the other hand, um, the tendency of the liberals is, is to sort of name check all sorts of causes, but then to, to actually keep moving in the same direction. So they'll say, we stand with Ukraine. They'll say, we wanna uh, support you know people in need, and then they'll, they'll actually, double down on the existing policy so what how do you think how do you think um the current conversation increases uh, or or impacts uh, the the chances of actually getting some of these things like the repeal of c69 that realized so uh, i mean i agree with you I, I think what the government's really good at is um doing the same thing they did before but perhaps you know throwing in a couple more buzzwords just to make sure that the word yeah. salad is as full <laughs> as possible yeah. um, I, I mean I, I don't feel it yet in, in public opinion that they that there's like a consensus that this is Canada's role a foreign policy role we had a foreign policy white paper that was actually prepared by Minister Freeland when she was foreign affairs minister. I think it's mostly fallen by the wayside. I actually can't think of a single part of it that I can easily remember and convey that this is Canada's foreign policy. And I think there's like, to me, two worlds. There is a pre-Russian in full-on invasion of Ukraine and that post-world, because I, I really strongly believe that the post-Cold War world that was built on the collapse of the Soviet Union, on the fall of the Berlin Wall, on the spread of liberal democracy across Eastern Europe and other places in the world, that world is, is closed now. I think it was coming to a close maybe after the 2008-2009 crisis uh, in financial markets, but I think we can now definitely say as of February 2022, that world no longer exists. We are not in the post-Cold War world. And I think that changes, I, I, you know, academics will say, changes the paradigm. 
I think Canadians and a lot of us politicians are still trying to figure out, okay, well, things have drastically changed. The world is truly different now. What does that mean for Canada? What does that mean for our role as a middle power? What is what can we do? What role can we play within these international organizations we belong to, like NATO, like where you know we have this free trade agreement with the European Union? How can we bolster our allies? Um, what is what is it the value add that Canada provides? Like how how good can we be? Or because what the Liberals have been doing so far is just freeloading for the most part. They've been freeloading on international or others, the work of others on international organizations. They'll say this quite often. They'll say, we're working with our international partners. Well, what does working mean? Does it mean you sent an email? Uh, are you on a Slack channel with all of them? Like that, that's nice. Like it, it's kitschy, it's cute, but it doesn't achieve foreign policy goals. And I think moving foreign policy goals involve things like are we assuring the energy security and stability of democracies in Central and Eastern Europe? Are we avoiding the trap that we see unfolding before us with one of our major allies, namely Germany? Um, is there something that we could do? Is there a way that Canadian companies can play a part in, in offsetting some of the choices that they're making? And sometimes the answer will likely be no for domestic political reasons. Maybe those countries won't. But I think here in Canada, we need a, a broader discussion because I don't think we've come to a consensus yet. I think those of us from Alberta, yeah, we absolutely agree. We need to build energy infrastructure because I think we benefit from something other places of Canada don't, which is we have a very high amount of people who work in the trades, who work in engineering, drafting, and design of these projects who have international experience. They have been to countries like Libya, like Colombia, like Venezuela. They have been to places in like uh, the sub-Saharan countries. They have been to places like Somalia and Kenya. They have been to Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Iraq, Iran. They have worked in places of the world which are far less stable, that do have sectarian violence. They have worked in places where it's actually quite difficult to get this type of energy infrastructure built. And they have also seen bad governments at work. That experience all returns back to Alberta. These are people who become executives in our companies, both medium and large. And they're the ones who are making international decisions on energy infrastructure investments. And they're, they know that investing in Canada is very expensive. It's very unsure right now, but it's stable. Like it's a stable democratic environment. Now the question becomes like, how stable is that economic and democratic environment in Eastern Europe? Would you be as willing today to invest in a large, let's say, LNG terminal in Latvia or in Lithuania? Would you invest in that same terminal in Ukraine? And I think a lot of people would give a second, third, and fourth thought now because they would be worried about, well, what about Russian aggression? Will they do it again? Yeah. Is this temporary war? Or is this something that will keep coming back every few years? Yeah. So to summarize what you just said is on the domestic politics, um, you're not confident that we're taking the sort of hard, deep look we need to. And what we need to, to do actually is take stock of the shifting paradigm. And, and that actually has to change what we do concretely, right? If insofar as we were thinking in an old paradigm of um, what well, one person I heard referred to as sort of this holiday from history uh, following the Cold War, where, where people sort of wanted to believe everything was going to be great uh, and, and that the conflicts of the past were behind us. Now we're, 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 we're face up against uh, a world of, uh, of hard competition. And that means we have to make certain choices uh, that prepare us for that. And one of them is, is developing our, our energy resources. Um, 
what in terms of new paradigms like do you do you think that it makes sense to speak about us as entering the second cold war uh, who knows and so on some level it's it's different from the first cold war and that there's much more interdependency and then we've got um um, I mean, there's there's uh, multiple players here. There's there's the West. There's Russia. There's China that are they're doing different things. Um, Cold War doesn't mean an absence of conflict. Of course, there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, proxy conflict and and a lot of blood spilled in, during the Cold War. Um, are we are we entering a second Cold War? I think it's too soon to start labeling with something yeah. like that. I and, it, and like you said, you know, we we in the West, so the West, you know, is pretty. It depends how you want to define it. Oftentimes, it's a substitute term for like NATO. I, I found in my experience, people substitute the two terms. Um, the Cold War for Westerners was pretty peaceful. I mean, there were conflicts that were fought on the periphery, but never directly inside the West. It was extremely rare, and I think. Um, you know, there was like, there were major wars fought in Africa. There was a major war fought in the territory of the Congo. Five million Africans died in the 1990s. And I don't think many Westerners even noticed. I don't think many people still realize how big a conflict this was and how many people were killed. Um, there were major conflicts between states that were not aligned uh, with, with anyone else. Um, you know, Iraq, and Iran were fighting a war between each other. Sometimes it's called a proxy war for the Soviet Union and America, but not really. They had kind of their own reasons to fight it in the 1980s. Um, but if you were in the West, this was, this was a really safe time. Uh, you had the nuclear umbrella of France, the United Kingdom, and America over most Western countries or Westernized countries protecting them. And although there was a Cuban Missile Crisis, I think afterwards it kind of ebbed away um, and then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, this, this, I think what Francis Fukuyama um, called, you know, the end of history and others have also called this, this holiday from, you know, from real life, I guess. Um, that never really went away. I think there were a lot of gains being made. So one argument I hear from people, um, and I, I think this will define how we should talk about the future is, you know, um, that all these former Warsaw Pact countries that were, uh, I'll say allied with the Soviet Union, but they were occupied, forced into an alliance with them in, in the Warsaw Pact countries, the, the counterpart to NATO. Um, they then turned around and said, well, I don't want to be allied with my former oppressor. I want to be allied with Western countries, NATO. I want to return to my Western roots. That was the case with the Republic of Poland. But Czechia, Slovakia and other countries quickly wanted to join NATO because they wanted that mutual defense from their aggressors that they looked at the Russian Federation. And I think what we're seeing today is a breakdown of that unipolar dual polarity world where you had two great powers, two superpowers that you kind of said, you're either on that side or on this side. And there are some non-aligned states, but not very many. And you have a breakdown of that system, full on breakdown. I think for 20 years, a lot of the, the, liberal left, a lot of people who were called themselves internationalists were cheering on this breakdown of the international world order. They wanted to see actually a move away from the, this duopoly of power or a unipolar world. They wanted a multipolar world. They, they, they talked about it quite often. Even some of Canada's foreign policy documents uh, encouraged and talked about how great this future world of multipolarity will be, where there will be multiple areas of influence of these, these larger countries. And I think that world is not as safe 
as it was sold to a lot of people. It is yeah. not a world that is stable. It is not a world that is known for the integrity of our borders and the borders of our allies. It is a world of more conflict, more disagreements, and more misunderstandings, because I think that's a big driver of it too. Uh, understanding the motivation of your neighbor, understanding the motivation of your aggressor, understanding the motivation of your your challenger, it, it, that, that's a simple thing to talk about, a very difficult thing to understand, and even more difficult thing to act upon. So I, I don't I don't think it's a it's a new or like a neo uh, Cold War two, uh, because that's again looking backwards in history to, to try and define what the future might look like. Like history rhymes. Um, I think we should talk about this is the breakdown of uh, the unipolar Pax Americana after the Soviet collapse. And it's a lot of uncertainty, lack of clarity, instability. It's not what we are sold that this would, you know, become better. It's actually become worse. This is worse for international business. It's actually worse for people who care about things like the sanctity of our borders after uh, World War II. Yeah, Tom, we could. Uh, these are these are critical topics, and and uh, every one of your answers kind of opens up more. We could we could go on for a lot longer as we often do in in private conversation. Um, so let me just wrap up with this, and then give you the last word. It, it seems to me that um, yeah, the world's going through a lot of changes, um, and uh, all of us as Canadians bring, as we've talked about, different experiences to the conversations about uh, about those things. But but one thing that um, that would be good for us to pursue as an economic and a security policy is um, is more uh, emphasis on free trade with free nations. Uh, that uh, powers like uh, like Russia, like China, uh, they can make arbitrary decisions that reflect their own strategic interests and um, and hold us vulnerable. There might be need need for us to make sanction related decisions. And the more strategic dependency we have on those countries, the more vulnerable we are. Uh, so we should work to expand trade with like-minded partners and energy is a big part of that uh, to reduce the, the dependency uh, we have on, on uh, revisionist powers and also the leverage that they have over us. And uh, in particular, displacing Russian gas in Europe uh, is one important way that we can uh, dramatically reduce that dependency uh, and uh, and hopefully save lives in the process by by uh, pulling fuel from Putin's war machine. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that that whole broad point of free trade with free nations, and and I'll give you the last word, and then we'll wrap up uh, wrap up the conversation. Yeah, I I completely agree. That that's exactly the point. Free trade with free nations is something we need to make like one of our bigger priorities as a, a middle power seeking to be the best possible middle power that we can be. I also we think we need to look at non-traditional allies. We need to look at countries that are like emerging democracies like Nigeria. Like Nigeria is projected to have by the end of this century almost 800 million people. I, lo I have a lot of Nigerians who live in my riding. Uh, my, my doctor, my, my family doctor is from Nigeria, Dr. Aladi, uh, great doctor. Um, but there's so many opportunities for us to reach out to countries that we're not traditionally thinking of as our next door neighbors, as our allies. Some of them are imperfect democracies. I'm thinking of like Ethiopia. But Ethiopia, again, turn of this at the end of the century is expected to have 223 million people. We 
spend a lot of time focusing on Europe and how it can stabilize its borders and ensure its energy security, but also the stability of its borders. But we have so many other opportunities out there to find allies who we can come alongside who are also exporters of energy, um, who are willing to do their parts to take on more of that stabilizing function in their region. And like a, a great starting point is Canada's relationship with a country like Nigeria, a big democracy, a big emerging power in that part of Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, with a huge amount of influence. Um, we should be looking to a country like that. They have a large diaspora that travels all around. Um, we could perhaps try to lean on them more saying, can you help us ensure the stability of the borders in Europe? It'd be great for your business, great for our business. And how can we cooperate more? And, you know, Parliament right now, we have all these um, inter-parliamentary association and organizations. A lot of this needs to be looked at again. Do we have uh, the structure set up in our parliamentary system. So it's not just a government to government relationship, but it's a parliament to parliament relationship. I call that the people relationship that we should start building with countries like Nigeria, with Ethiopia, Brazil, who have large populations that continue to grow. I, I am a firm believer that demography is the deciding factor in, in these, these uh, world conflicts. Uh, large, fast-growing populations. Um, there's a large middle class burgeoning in there that will have uh, will have to satisfy their energy needs. And with it comes the questions of energy security. And then it goes all the way back to also Europe's energy security, the choices that they're making, the choices they're making for their future. So, I mean, it's all integrated at some point, but since we can't do everything, we got to pick and choose what we can do. And maybe some of the things we can do is find these non-traditional allies that will want to come alongside us to help stabilize Europe's borders, especially because some of these countries are not aligned with places like Russian Federation or the People's Republic of China, or if they're going in that direction, maybe there's an opportunity to pull them away from them and create the, this alliance of, of these smaller middle powers. Mm -hmm. Tom, thanks so much for so many great points. Uh, thanks for being on here. And uh, uh, folks, uh, you, you can uh, follow the other resuming debate, which is a Substack, um, by going to what's the URL? Tom, we'll put it. We'll put it in the in the show notes. But uh, I'll, I'll give it to you because you might appreciate this uh, as a hardworking politician. It's TomKimmich.work. TomKimmich.work. Fantastic. Okay, so that's that's where people can find your Substack. Uh, so if you like the resuming debate podcast, subscribe, leave a review and follow the other resuming debate, um, Tom Substack, and we'll keep the conversation going. These are these are critical issues for the future of, uh, of Canada and for the future of the world. Uh, Tom, it's a pleasure working with you in Parliament, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to continuing these, these important battles. And uh, for everybody who's listening, we'll be back again in seven days with another episode. All the best. Mm -hmm.